right, as we're standing there, take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter number 3. We're going to read just the first 10 verses here this morning. And uh, thank you, Joanna, for helping this morning, for playing, doing a great job. And uh, that's a blessing. This is hard enough, and I'm way outside of my comfort zone. Uh, and But it is a lot easier having somebody that is capable over there at the piano. So thank you for your help this morning. Uh, Exodus chapter number 3. And we'll look at the first ten verses here this morning. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, and the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert, and came to the mountain of God, even unto Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Verse 7 really begins our text this morning down through verse number 10. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto a place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I want to speak to you this morning on the thought, He knows my sorrow. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity that we have to come together in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, there are so many places in this world where we take for granted what others cannot do. And Lord, we are so blessed And we squander so much of what you give to us. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to renew our relationship with you, to engage in relationship with you, to understand that no matter where we've been or what we go through or what lies ahead, you're always there with us. You're always in control. You always care. You always have a plan. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to see some truths here that would encourage us in the way, that would help us to have a desire and a determination to persevere, to continue on. Lord, may we be faithful. Lord, if there are some that are here this morning, perhaps, that have never trusted you as their Savior, Lord, may they today trust you and come to know you and the relationship that you provide. Lord, help us, we pray now. In the Lord Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we look here this morning, Israel's circumstances are, uh, are grim. They have been in a difficult way. Moses has escaped death as an infant when the edict of Pharaoh to drown all of the male children was given, and he was pulled out. 
and drawn out of the River Nile. He was drawn out. God miraculously worked in his life to save him. It was not that he was drawn out that saved him as much as it was who drew him out that saved him. And if the right person had not drawn him out, he still would have been executed. But because a royal of Egypt drew him out, he was spared. And in God's grace, he called his own mother to be his nurse and allowed him to have that time, though he was not knowing who she was. He was brought up and educated in Egypt. He was treated with privilege and uh, and uh, enjoyed the best of all that they had to offer. And then when he came of age, he chose that he would rather, as he learned his true identity, he would rather suffer affliction with the people of God uh, than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That resulted in his banishment from Egypt, and he fled. And for 40 years, he lived a life of privilege. And then for 40 years, he lived in the desert. And now we see him coming to the end of that 40-year period of his life, uh, not a young man, but by their standards, they lived a little longer in those days than we do. Uh, and so he still had uh, ability, he still had stamina and strength, and he still uh, was someone who uh, could get out and do the labor, but yet had the wisdom and the knowledge and the presence to lead the people of God. And so he is caring for, intending for uh, his father-in-law's livestock, and as he is out uh, in the midst there, he comes across this amazing sight of God for the first time in 400 years revealing himself to man. It's an amazing period of time, and you stop and you think about it. Early in Genesis, in the life of Abraham, God told Abraham that for about 400 years, I'm going to uh, allow this your your people to be in Egypt. He uh, and that that time is now drawing to a close. In fact, by the time they leave, I believe that they spend uh, near 430 years in slavery and captivity or in Egypt, and so it's been a trying time. Moses is out doing his job honorably, but yet he is separated from his and is about to discover his true calling in life and to learn what God has what God has prepared him for. I've often heard it said and have stated myself that God spent the first 40 years of Moses' life teaching him what it was like to be somebody. And then he spent the next 40 years of his life teaching him what it was like to be a nobody. And then he spent the last 40 years of his life teaching, teaching him what God, or showing the world what God could do with a somebody who believed himself to be a nobody and just let God do a work in their life. And so Israel's circumstances are not good. Israel's circumstances are bleak. They, for these 430 years, have been in slavery. They have been in Egypt. Egypt, we understand to be a picture, a type of the world. And we see, and there are many correlations here, the many conclusions that we can draw uh, and observations that we can make. And we'll do that this morning. But Egypt here, as we relate what God is doing with his nation, shows a beautiful picture of what God has done with us in the day and age in which we live. Egypt represents the world. Egypt represents a system that is designed to bring people into suppression uh, and slavery. Uh, it is, it is a, a, a system of mind control and a system of adaptation to uh, a lifestyle and a mindset that is contrary to the lifestyle of God. 
and what God has commanded. I think it's important that parents be careful about what your children are indoctrinated with, even through children's television programming. Uh, and we've kind of rediscovered that now that grandchildren are on the scene. Uh, and one of our children's favorite shows growing up, whenever they were really small, uh, was a cartoon called Arthur. It's about an aardvark. And the character's out, and his teacher at school, Mr. Ratburn, and in the season premiere, in the coming season, Mr. Ratburn is going to marry a man normalizing sin in the minds of children. When we talk about the world system, uh, that's what we're referring to. There's nothing about the order of the world that is not under the control of Satan. The Bible tells us that Satan is the god of this world. And so understanding this morning that that is the case, it's not hard for us to understand that Satan uses all of his talent, ability, skill, wisdom, and deviance to work things to draw us not to God, but as far away from God as He can get us. The, the more corrupt a culture becomes, the less God is a part of it. And you can see that throughout history. Uh, you can see that throughout recent history as well as ancient history. And so Egypt is a picture of the world. It is a picture of the world system. It is a picture of what, what Satan wants to do to our life. He wants us in bondage. He wants us enslaved by our sin. I believe that you see here in the Egyptians and the taskmasters uh, that there are demonic forces at play. Uh, there are human forces at play, uh, but that it, 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 what it really is, what my main taskmaster is, is my own sin. When I come under the control and the authority of my own sin, when I am when I am drawn down and oppressed by my own sin, that's what sin does. That's what sin accomplishes. That what that is why sin is so powerful, and that's what Jesus Christ came to liberate us from. Not just the penalty of our sin, but from the power of our sin. And we see that displayed uh, in picture here. Of Egypt, and so uh, they've been in this idolatrous society. Idolatrous society. Everything that they have here, uh, they have been experiencing for 400 years. Pharaoh himself is called Ra, which is the sun god. Uh, there is a, a, a several other gods uh, that are reflected in their culture and in their imagery, uh, and they worshipped those gods. It was a society that was idolatrous. Uh, we live in an idolatrous society today, even in America. We may not bow down uh, to statues per se, but we bow down to things. We bow down to people. We bow down to uh, ideas that we set ahead of God. And understand this morning that what idolatry is in its essence is merely putting something in the place that belongs to God. Anything that I set in God's rightful place in my life becomes an idol to me. I may not go and bow down intentionally and worship it, but if it is deflecting me and distracting me from my worship of God, then I am in effect what I give my attention to, what I give my devotion to, uh, what I strive to maintain in my life. Those are things that if I, they're not in the right position and order, uh, become my God. They live in an idolatrous society. It is a powerful society and sin is powerful. Sin is far more powerful. Our sin is far more powerful than any of us will ever be. We relate to that easily when we think about it in terms of, uh, of substances and addictions and things of that nature. Uh, we can see that clearly and easily when we think about 
people that are overwhelmed by alcoholism or by uh, by narcotics because they lose control of their ability to make decisions and those decisions are driven all their decisions in life are driven by the obtaining of this thing that their body screams for that is that is sin uh, and it's and it's most overt overt fashion but we all struggle with sin and the person that comes into a church service that's struggling with alcoholism and addiction is not any different than the person that comes in struggling with bitterness and anger. Uh, sin is sin. And all of it ultimately has the same effect. It may manifest itself different in us physically, but the mental and the spiritual agony that it causes and the heartbreak that it causes and the spiritual growth that, it's, that it stunts is all the same. And when we come to understand that the culture in which they live, that Egypt is an idolatrous society, it is a powerful society, it is an influential society. It was the most powerful nation in the world in its day. There was no one that could stand against them at this time. Egypt dare not, uh, Israel dare not flee because they had not the power and the wherewithal to fight off this army. They knew that they would be destroyed. Just 80 years earlier when Moses was, <coughs> was a child, they, uh, the, the Egyptians knew, hey, Israel's getting to be so strong and great in number uh, that they may ally themselves with an enemy, then that would give them jointly together the ability to threaten us. And so they suppressed them and put them in even greater bondage, harder labor. They were a powerful society. They were influential. They influenced culture around them. You stop and you think about ancient Egypt even sometimes influences our culture today. And we look and we consider the things and the power that they do. It is a complete picture of the havoc that sin can wreck in a person's life if we allow it to run its course. Here, the sin of Egypt has been running its course through the people of Israel for over 400 years. The current generation has known nothing other than bondage. For several generations, they've known nothing but bondage. They have uh, no real written record of God's law as of yet. Everything that they know about God has just been simply passed down uh, by candlelight and by fire in their homes as they tried to rest in the evening or stories that they shared as they labored in the fields uh, as they built the treasure cities in the pyramids of Egypt uh, under the whip and uh, and the back-breaking work that was done. That's all they've known, and all that they know of God uh, is what little bit that they're able to put into practice. It is the going through the motions of religion, not a relationship with a loving God that cares for them and say, Pastor, how uh, could a loving God allow such a thing to transpire? Well, this is transpiring because of sin, not because... God wanted to burden them with it. God is making preparation to bring them out. God has not left them abandoned or forgotten. He has held them together in the midst of their suffering. Their basic needs have been met in the midst of their suffering. It's not connected to them because of their own blindness by sin, but He's always there. In this current generation, their only connection to God is ritual and fabulistic stories. You stop and you think about things that we know from 400 years ago 
We have the benefit of written books that tell us that history. But aside from that, remove that, all we would have is what stories have been passed down for uh, those 400 years. And so we're going to just look at a few items here this morning, a few things uh, as we consider this, the truths of this passage this morning. And I want you to notice, first of all, that God comes to Moses in this burning bush and he says in verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. I have seen their affliction. God is not blind to it. God is not numb to it. God is not careless to it. And I would say to you this morning that we as a people today need to understand that God sees our affliction. If we're here this morning and we feel afflicted, God is aware and God cares. Now some things about their affliction that I think is obvious through their history and through what they're doing. Uh, the Egyptians here have borne down on them so, so oppressively uh, and was so much, uh, so harshly uh, that their affliction this morning, I think it's fair to say that their affliction is physical. And there are a lot of people today that suffer from physical affliction. Sometimes we suffer from physical affliction because of tragedy, because of accident. Sometimes we could suffer, a person could suffer from physical affliction because of birth defects. Uh, sometimes we could suffer from physical affliction because of age. And uh, I think anybody that's, uh, that's, that's getting up in their years over uh, probably about 35 or 40 uh, can start to say, I'm starting to feel some of the afflictions of just getting older. I was counseling with someone Friday night in my office and uh, getting ready for RU to start. And I was sitting on one of the sofas there and the couple was sitting on the other side. And uh, when it was time for us to end the meeting and go down the hallway, uh, when I stood up, every joint in my body from, uh, from my hips down popped loud and grotesquely, all in unison and in harmony. Uh, and then the, the gentleman that was there just looked at me and his eyes about popped out of his head. And he said, wow, that's a lot of cracking and popping. Yeah, yeah, tell me about it. That's pretty much the norm. If I sit down in a hard chair and just lean forward, I can hear the, uh, the, the disc in my back popping. I can feel them and I can hear them. And even when it's not painful, it, you still know what's going on. Hey, listen, sometimes affliction is physical. I think about uh, Miss Debbie gave a report of Brother Paul the other day, and they're not feeling well this morning, so pray for them, that he was able to get up and walk uh, with his walker down his ramps and all the way out to the mailbox and back without the aid of the wheelchair uh, to check the mail. And that's huge progress, and praise God for it. But Brother Paul's dealing with some physical affliction. He's also dealing with some psychological affliction. I'll say this because they're, I know they're not here, but they are watching this morning. He lives with Miss Debbie. He's got psychological affliction. I was going to pick on someone here, but I don't want my aunt to be mad at me. <clears throat> God says, I see your affliction. Their affliction was physical. How do you know, Pastor? Well, they were held in bondage. They were in bondage. May I say to you this morning that what sin does in our lives is put us in bondage? Is someone that is overwhelmed with alcoholism, someone that's overwhelmed with, the, with tobacco, someone that's overwhelmed with narcotics, they are not in control. It is in control of them. And I, you know, grew up in my early days with smokers, and uh, and it was amazing how much control it had. I can remember hearing the hacking, the coughing every morning. 
I can remember the, uh, the, I, the, the shaking, the trembling, the nervousness, having to get that drag so that it could. Uh, I'm glad that I, that's something that God allowed me and spared me from ever being tempted to uh, a path to go down. Listen, uh, I know a lot of good people that struggle with those types of afflictions, but I'm just saying this morning, what sin does is controls us. And, and it's easy to see with some sins, but it's no different than any other sin. If I'm here this morning, if you're here this morning and you are uh, someone that has a, an uncontrollable angry spirit, uh, then you are no different than the drug addict. You are just as much under the control of, an ang- of that angry spirit uh, as someone uh, who is struggling with uh, alcohol or, or narcotics. If you're someone that's, that's, that's hanging on to and clinging to, uh, to bitterness and, uh, and hard feelings, someone that's hanging on to uh, 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 all kinds of uh, anxiety and worry uh, and those types of sin in life uh, and say, well, pastor, everybody worries a little, but to worry is to doubt God. My faith should be strong enough to carry me through. And I'm not saying that we're not all guilty. I'm just saying it's still sin. Just because we're all guilty of it at times doesn't make it any less a sin. And sometimes we kind of get and buy into the world's mentality that, well, if everybody else is struggling with it, everybody else, it's just our nature. Well, it might be our nature, but may I remind you that the Bible clearly defines our nature as a sin nature. It's still sin. It still separates us from God. It still wrecks our our fellowship with God if you're his child. It still brings us into affliction and controls us. I know a lot of people that uh, that folks would look at on the outside and think, man, what a wonderful Christian. But when you sit down personally and you hear the story and you see what's going on in their heart and their life, you see someone that's uh, that's so angry or so embittered or so unable to forgive or so caught up uh, in the things of uh, of of the the mental aspects of our life. They live in fear. They live in darkness. They have no ability to just trust God. They're consumed with worry and all. All of those things in their life is a life of misery, even though on the outside everything looks wonderful. There's no difference in sin whatsoever. Sin is afflicting. Their affliction in Egypt was physical first and foremost, but their affliction also was psychological. You cannot live in that environment. You cannot live under that bondage. You cannot live under that control uh, of, of the whip and a lack of good food, and not be psychologically affected. Their thought process, the way that they processed information, the way that they thought, all of that was shaped and molded by the bondage that was forced upon them. Their affliction was psychological. Oh, they remembered the stories of old, but they were just stories. They remembered how God brought Joseph out and how God raised him from the pit and how God lifted him into power. How God provided, they, they knew the stories, they, they heard about <coughs> the things of, uh, of years gone by, but they had never experienced it on their, uh, themselves. And I think it's a sad and a tragic thing that people today can come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and, and experience the forgiveness of their sin, but never experience the freedom that Christ can give from their sin. 
They don't grow enough. They don't learn enough. They don't hang in long enough to be discipled and to learn and to experience a relationship with Christ. Or all they see are, are, are the, uh, the negatives, the problems, and the heartache that uh, that happen in our in our circumstances and in our walk in relationships with people because we're all people. Their affliction was psychological. They remembered the stories of old. They remembered their dead sons. Sonia and I are fortunate enough uh, to have never had to bury a child, though we know what it's like to lose children before birth. Uh, I cannot imagine having to bury a child. Others in our family have experienced that, and the generation before us experienced that, and tragically so. And I know that... It's not an uncommon thing, though I'm grateful that it's not as common in, the, in, in our time as it was in years gone by. We love to go when we go to Tennessee. We love to go up into the Smokies. And uh, one of the places that we love to go is Cage Cove. It's a full place called Cage Cove. It's an 11-mile one-way loop around uh, around an old uh I hate to say even it's not really a village is not really the right word for it because everything's just spread out. But there's old houses there from the late 1800s that uh, obviously are abandoned. There's an old mill there. Uh, there are some primitive old churches there. Uh, and in those a couple of those churches are some cemeteries. Uh, this, uh, you may think find this morbid or think it's strange, but uh, I kind of like walking through old cemeteries. They tell a story. I like looking at the dates and the names. There's a soldier there that's buried from the Revolutionary War. Uh, and then there you can look and you can see uh, big blocks of the cemetery kind of outlined in stone and read the headstones and you can see a family, one family there buried six children that never made it to the age of three. I can't imagine going through that. But the people of Israel remembered the destruction and the death of their sons being thrown into the river. There's no way to erase that from your mind. There's, there's no way to let go completely of that memory. And even if they were gracious enough and had the strength of character and to walk with a God that they really didn't even at this point in their, in their history know to forgive, they still would bear the scars the psychological affliction of remembering their dead sons. And I think that it is a fair assumption on my part and on our part to say that with God not being a part of their culture and society for so long, over 400 years, for them to have suffered at the hands of the Egyptians, to have to eat certainly food that was of a lesser quality, than what the average Egyptian citizen would have consumed. To not have adequate care, to not have a government that is concerned with your well-being, only what they can get out of your body before it's consumed and can no longer be of value. That all of that, the death of their sons, the, the, the no way of seeing a path at any point in the future to freedom, other than a long ago made promise would have brought them to a point of utter hopelessness. You know how many people walk around the city of Baytown and around our country and around the world indeed today that do so without hope? Look at the suicide rates. They increase every year. And they're not just 
the poor and the needy that are affected by it. Oftentimes, it's the wealthy and the privileged that are afflicted by it. Why? Because people are losing hope. So people live in a, and we live in a time when people have no real hope of, uh, of their lives uh, getting better. And I'm not talking about materially getting better. I'm talking about relationally getting better. There's no real hope or belief that they can find peace in their inner soul. There's no real hope or belief that they can overcome the things in their life that they know bring destruction to their relationships. Their affliction was psychological. They remembered those stories. They had the scars of their dead sons, and they, I believe, had lost all hopes. Listen, what we see here is we see the effects and the afflictions of the circumstances of their life. And listen, we all have circumstances in life. Some are good and some are bad. Some we'd like to forget and can't. Some we'd like to remember and those have gone. But we all have different circumstances in life, but are we going to allow the circumstances of our life to define who we are? Are we going to allow our relationship with Jesus Christ to define who we are? They had lost all hope. They had been afflicted in their health. They had been afflicted in their mind. And in all of that, as they're suffering, there is a God in heaven who is beginning to work, who is been working throughout all this process to affect their release, their freedom, their salvation, their redemption. To not just bring redemption to them, but to use them to bring redemption to all of humanity. God is at work in the life of a young baby that's thrown into a river, placed in a basket. He's at work when he's drawn out. He's at work when he chooses God's people. He's at work when he's banished and wanders across the desert. He's at work for 40 years while he's tending uh, the flocks of his father-in-law. And he's at work as he ignites a burning bush and occupies it while he converses with Moses and announces to him his call. He's beginning to work now, not in just the background and behind the scenes, but he's about to come forward and work overtly, outwardly, in a tremendous way. God looks down from heaven and he, he speaks with Moses, though Moses for 40 years has, has, uh, has been unengaged and uh, though he probably has not forgotten his people in Egypt, he certainly is disengaged from their suffering. When God shows up and said to him, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And may I say to you this morning with all confidence in the authority of God's word that if you're here this morning and you are afflicted intellectually, if you are oppressed by sin, if you are afflicted physically, if you are afflicted in any way whatsoever, that God sees your affliction. And that God cares about the state of your life and your heart and your walk with him. That God is not sitting idly by, though he may not be on the forefront, he is working and he is striving to accomplish in your life that which will set you free from the bondage and the affliction of sin and that which will bring glory and honor to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see, first of all, that God says, I see your affliction. Secondly, consider this morning, he says, I hear your cry. I hear your cry. 
And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. May I say this morning that God hears our cry. What a wonderful truth to know that God hears my prayer. That God longs to engage in relationship with me. I see this morning that God hears the cry of the afflicted. If you're afflicted this morning, I believe that you have a special place in the heart of God. If we're in a place where life has maybe been unfair or difficult, that God uh, loves you. That God has not forgotten you. They cry out hopelessly to an unknown God. They're not even sure that the God of their, uh, of their old stories is real. But they cry out and God hears them. He hears the cry of the afflicted. If you're afflicted this morning, keep praying. If you're afflicted this morning, physically, emotionally, don't give up. There is hope. Don't succumb to the pressure of the world. Listen, the world wants us to lose hope. The world wants us to feel as if God is cut off from us. The world wants us to convince us that God doesn't care, that God is not real, that God does not uh, intervene in the affairs of men. That's what the world wants us to believe. Because if that's what God is, then God is of no value to us and we are of no value to Him. No one wants to be in a relationship where they're not valued. But nothing can be further from the truth. God values us so much that He sent His own Son to die on Calvary's cross. He values us so much that He made a way to satisfy His wrath, to redeem His creation, so that we could stand and walk and engage in relationship with our God. He heard the cry of the afflicted. I believe this morning it's fair to say that He heard the cry of the brokenhearted. There's no way that there were people there in that affliction that were under that duress, that were living in that lifestyle, that were remembering uh, their, uh, their dead and their wounded and their murdered that would not live their lives brokenhearted. I remember looking at pictures when my, uh, when my 20, almost not quite 21-year-old uncle drowned in Lake Grapevine. And I remember I was just a, a little boy and I, I remember now I can go back and I can look at pictures of my grandparents that are a few months after that and I can still see the redness around their eyes. My grandfather, his father only lived three more years. He died from a heart attack in his own backyard. I think it fair to say that more than dying from a heart attack, he, he died from a broken heart. My grandmother never got over it. And I don't think that that's a stretch. It's something that stays with you for a lifetime. Their hearts were broken. And listen, what, what comes about in life, I think for all of us, is that we all could look at circumstances and situations and things in our life that are heartbreaking, that linger, that, that hang on to us as we hang on to them. And we go through life bearing that burden, enduring that affliction, and all the while, though we want it, we struggle to make contact and connect with the one 
who can bring peace, who can bring comfort, who can ease the pain and the suffering. The memory will never go away. In some cases, the hurt will never completely diminish. But there's a God who cares. There's a God who loves. There's a God who wants to make a difference. There's a God who wants to take our tragedy and use it to help others, to bring people to Christ, to grow us closer to Him in the midst of it. He heard the cry of the afflicted. He heard the cry of the brokenhearted. I believe this morning it's fair to say that He heard the cry of the hopeless. How could you live all of your life in that scenario knowing that generations before you lived the same meaningless and suffering lifestyle that you've lived and ever think that it would come to an end? They lived in hopelessness. I would say this morning, don't lose hope. He hears you. Don't give up. He hears you. Don't let sin defeat you. He hears you. If you're overwhelmed under the taskmaster of sin, let God rise you up. He came and he set us free from that bondage. Notice that he says there also in verse number seven, I know your sorrow. He says, I, I hear their cry. I know their sorrow. And this is an amazing statement because it's one thing to have someone's sympathy. It's another thing entirely to have their empathy. As someone that has walked where you've walked, someone that's experienced what you've experienced, they may not be more qualified to help you because the Bible helps us with everything that we need, but they are more qualified to feel what we feel. And it's a wonderful thing today that we have a God that's been touched with a feeling of our infirmities and has been in all points tempted as we are and yet is without sin. That he's taken upon himself the sorrow and the burden of us all. Isaiah chapter number 53 and verse number 4. And the story of and the prophecy of what Jesus would endure on the cross. And he says there, surely he hath borne our griefs and has carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. He knows our sorrow. He's been betrayed. He's been hurt by those that he thought loved him or knew or that, that professed to love him. He understands our sorrow. We have not a Savior that just looks in pity. We have a Savior that understands our affliction. We have a Savior that cares about our sorrow, that wants to draw us close to himself. He understands. You can come to me uh, with some deep problems and I may have to say to you, I, this is what the scripture says and this is what God has done and this is the right course to take and this is the right path of action that you need to pursue. And all of those things are right and all of those things are good. But the one to whom I would point you is the one that feels your pain, that understands it. I may not always understand what I have to give counsel to someone to help them with, but Jesus does. He understands. He knows. He's concerned. He cares. He understands my sorrow. I think that it's fair to say and very plain to see in the Scripture that He has experienced my pain. We will never, no matter how difficult life becomes, no matter how much one might suffer, no one will ever experience the pain and the suffering that Jesus experienced when He died on Calvary's cross for us. No one can stand before God and say, you don't know what it's like. 
No one can stand before Jesus and say that you, how could you let this happen to me? Because he took upon himself the sin of us all. He drew us close to him. He bore that iniquity. In Hebrews chapter number 4 and verse number 15, uh, the Bible says, Therefore we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are and yet, uh, like, like as we are and yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I would say this morning that it's fair to say that it's biblically accurate to say that Jesus Christ not only has seen me in my affliction, not only has he heard our cry, but he knows our sorrow. He understands it. He's experienced our pain. He feels our heartbreak and his heart breaks with ours. I don't know that there is a more beautiful picture of this in all the scripture than in John chapter 11. Jesus comes to a tomb and Jesus knew that he could have come earlier and spared the life of Lazarus, but he needed to delay so that they could see the power of God. And Jesus comes to the tomb and immediately is met with a sister that says, if you would have just come earlier, he wouldn't have died. He didn't even have to come. He could have healed him from where he was. And Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew that when he came, he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that all of their sorrow and suffering was going to turn to joy. He knew that the miracle that he would perform would, would, would be impossible for them to anticipate and impossible for them to understand, but they would see. Here's the amazing thing to me. It's the shortest scripture in all of the Bible. In John chapter 11 and verse number 35, when Jesus, knowing that he would resurrect Lazarus, give life, bring healing, turn sorrow to joy, when he was there with them, the people that the Bible says that he loved. The Bible doesn't use that term freely with Jesus. We know that he loves everyone, that he died for everyone. But when it comes to men that the Bible specifically uses the word and makes the statement whom the Lord loves, John is the disciple whom he loved. Lazarus, or, or the, the rich young ruler who never trusted in him, is one that the Bible says that Jesus loved. And Mary, Martha, and Lazarus he loved. He loved us all, but I think that the inference here is that he loved them and he had a special love for them. They had a special place in the heart of our Savior. And Jesus here says he wept. So why is that such a big deal, Pastor? Well, if I come on the scene and I know, Brother Wayne, that I'm about to solve all of your problems and turn your sorrow to joy, I'm going to show up and I'm going to say, I know it's hard, I know you're hurting, but everything's going to be okay. Let's just, let's just get the happy party started right now. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus looked at the people that he loved who were hurting and he wept with them. Though he knew he would bring joy, though he knew he would bring healing, he felt their sorrow. He knew their sorrow. He loved them. And I'm saying this morning that he feels your heartbreak and his heart breaks with you. He loves you. He loves you like no person ever could. And he cares. If you're going through a hard time today, 
may I say to you that Jesus sees your affliction, that he hears your cry, that he knows your sorrow. And lastly, this morning, God says, I'm coming to deliver you. Notice that he says here in verse number seven, again, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Every sin that afflicts us, he is here to deliver us from. Every heartache that, that afflicts us, he's here to deliver us from. The power of this world, the power of its mechanisms, the power of Satan, the God of this world, the power of our sin nature, all of it, Jesus is here to deliver us from. <coughs> Colossians chapter number 1 and verses 12 through 14 says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1 and verses 9 and 10 said, For they themselves show us, show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how that ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, a work of faith, uh, that, that turning in the living God a labor of love, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come, the patience of hope. And Jesus comes and God's message through Moses is, is that I hear your, I see your affliction and I've heard your cry and I know your sorrow and I know you feel helpless and I know you feel hopeless, but I'm here to give hope. <coughs> I'm here to set you free. I'm here to help you break the chains of this world. I'm here to deliver you. <clears throat> and while Moses is given a lot of credit and rightfully so, as being their deliverer, their true deliverer is God. And our true deliverer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our deliverer, the one who sets us free from the power and the bondage of our sin, the one that freed us from the penalty of that sin, is the one who has come to deliver us. He delivers us from the power of the world. Why has God given us His grace and His mercy? Why does the Bible tell us that a just man falls seven times yet rises up again? It's because when He saved my soul, He did not instantly demand and expect that we could achieve perfection. He knew that we were sinners who had been saved by grace, that we're a work in progress until we come into His presence. He says, I'm delivering you from the power of the world. Listen, we still live in this world and we're still affected by our sin and we're still fight a battle with this old man and this old nature. But we have in, the, in, in us, in the Holy Spirit of God, uh, the person who has the power to deliver us from this world, from the power of this sin of this world and the sin of my own heart and who has delivered me from the bonds of hopelessness. He can set us free. 
If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's the beginning point. That's just the starting point. That's just where we first come into contact with Him when we realize, hey, I am a sinner. I was born a sinner. And I was just as they were born in the world, just as they were born into slavery, we were born into slavery to our sin. And it hates us. And it wants to control us. And ultimately it wants to use us up until there's nothing left and then cast us aside. Tell me that you can look around the world around us and see that that's not what the world does. Delivered. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can be delivered today. You can begin a new, brand new life today. By accepting the fact that I'm a sinner, that I live in this bondage, and that the only one with the power to set me free is Jesus Christ. And I put my faith and my trust in Him. And in that moment, I am born into His family, set free from the bondage and the power of my sin. He sets us free from the power of the world, from the power of sin, and then He delivers us from the bonds of hopelessness. Listen, Christian, if you're here this morning and you have struggled in your Christian life and you have struggled to overcome sin in your life and you've struggled to to really serve God and to have a great, sweet fellowship with Him, may I say to you that clinging to your sin and living a life of hopelessness is not the life that Jesus provided for you at salvation. He provided an avenue to freedom. Isn't it interesting that in this picture that God gives us in the world in the Old Testament, that God had the power in that moment to say, all right, I'm striking Pharaoh down and you're out of here, but he didn't didn't use it. It took 10 plagues. It took a long, arduous process that the very people that he delivered struggled with his delivery, that they questioned at times what God was doing and striving to accomplish in their life, that they didn't always understand. We're not always going to understand. We're not always going to feel as if God's in our corner. I'm sure that whenever Pharaoh doubled the tally of the bricks that they had to make with less straw, and they had to gather their own, that at that moment they did not feel as if God was working on their behalf. I'm sure that they questioned, and the Bible tells us clearly that they did, when they stood at the, at the bank of the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army closed and borne down on them, and they could see no way forward, and they could see no way of escape, that they did not feel in the moment that God was working on their behalf, but He was. And when the time came, the sea parted, and the ground dried, and they crossed, and they were delivered. Listen, when Jesus Christ saves our soul and begins, we are instantly set free from the punishment of our sin, but the pull from the flesh and from the world into sweet fellowship with God and victory in areas of our Christian life are at times going to be like going through the plagues. They hang on. 
Egypt tried to hang on. The world tried to hang on. And when you try to live for God, whether you're someone that just trusts Jesus as your Savior or someone that's been away from God is trying to come back and do what's right, I can promise you that you will have a battle on your hands because the world and the God of this world is going to try to hang on and keep you from serving God. Understand that there is one who is stronger. Understand there's one who's greater. And though the world will stand up and tell you that they love you and tell you that they see your affliction and tell you that they hear your cry and tell you that they want to deliver you, what they really want is to keep you under control. There's only one. There's only one true deliverer. And his name is Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you are crushed under the weight of the hopelessness of eternal life and the lack thereof, you found it in this place this morning in Jesus. If you'll put your faith in him. If you're a Christian who's trying to find your way back. If you're a Christian who's lived your Christian existence stifled by worry, by anger, by bitterness, by you fill in the blank. There is one who has given victory. There is one who has seen your affliction. There is one who is hearing your cry. Pastor, I'm really not even crying out about it. Well, they were crying that they didn't even know what, but God heard them. They were crying to just an old story, but he heard them and he knew their sorrow and he cared for them and he cares for us. Jesus loves you and he died for you. And if you'll put your faith and trust in him this morning, he'll save you. And if you're a Christian, he'll come home to him. He'll welcome you with open arms. If you're a Christian that's living and you know, man, pastor, my life is, I'm trying to do my very best, but I just can't seem to to get ahead. Why don't you just come to Jesus and lay your burdens at his cross and get into his yoke and let yourself fall in step with him rather than trying to force him to get in step with yourself and let God have his way. When you do, you'll find victory, you'll find joy, you'll find hope, and you'll find a life that is engaged in a sweet relationship with a loving Savior who has the power to overcome everything in your life that has overcome you. Heavenly Fathers, we close this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd work and speak in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that no matter how difficult life can get, that you care, that you know our sorrow, that you've been touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Lord, I pray that you'd work in our hearts. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd bring conviction upon us and that we respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.